Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. With me, as always, is Cynthia Kao. Cynthia, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. I'm excited. Summer is coming up. That means I get to go kayaking and do a bunch of stuff that I, you know, was hibernating in the winter and I couldn't do. Yeah, I'm with you. I can't wait. It's uh, it's May, which means it's transition season. It is also Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. So if you are new to the podcast, welcome. We are so thrilled that you're here. Every week we get to talk to amazing founders who have just one extra thing on their resume and that's service to our country. And this week I'm thrilled because we have... Julie Davila, and uh, she's with um, Zebasec. I had to stop for and think of that for a second. First, we're going to get to why you called it Zebasec in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit more about like your background. It's it's really cool. You were in the army. Like, what was the thought process for you going into the army? Like, why the army? Um, so I, I was a really bad high school student. Um, I, I graduated with a pretty low GPA, um, and I was also poor, so, um, I wasn't going to pay for college myself. And, um, so the scholarship options when you're poor and have bad academic performance are limited. Um, so for me, I applied to an ROTC scholarship. I got it. Um, after my first year of being at Oregon, um, I realized I didn't want to be an officer. So... I was like, well, I want to drop out, and then I'm just gonna I'm gonna enlist, um, just to um, to see if I like the military to yeah. begin with, and um, so that's sort of what prompted um, the enlistment option. Uh, the military service itself, um, it was it was a function of sort of just limited options from where, where I grew up, where it's like, well, that's probably the best option that isn't going to saddle me with debt or make me take like re- really risky life is, uh, decisions. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was your family supportive of you enlisting? Um, by by force, kind of, right? So mm-hmm. um, I, I initially enlisted um, into the reserves when I was 17, and uh, my mom was kind of against it. And I'm like, well, you can either, like, consent to it now or, like, I'm, when I'm 18, I'll do it. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so there was a little bit of hesitation at first. Um, certainly, like, my grandma was, like, freaking out about it. But... Um, Sort of after six months into it, they were they were all on board and, and happy about it. What do you think their main concern was for you? Uh, dying, right? So like my uh, my my grandma, uh, she she's like sort of your typical Mexican grandmother. It was sort of like uh, I'm translating to English, of course, but she would say, <laughs> "Oh, I don't want you to be like cannon fodder," right? Like that was sort of like her big hesitation. Um, there was sort of this. Um, sort of a narrative in their mind where like people who join the military, especially on the enlisted side are like, don't typically make it right. Like that's, that was them not knowing any better. That's kind of what was going on in their minds. Yeah. You know, you, you touch on a point there. It's a very valid point. It's a very real point. And we don't talk about that a lot. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, minority groups we discuss is and my dad did the same thing. He's like somebody else's daughter 
could be cannon fodder. And he said this in Chinese. And, you know, I'm like, no, 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 that doesn't exist. But, you know, as I serve my term, I realize other people, other groups, um, especially minority groups, felt like they weren't validated and that it would be easier to be sent in into jobs or occupations or um, it, on certain missions that would put their lives at risk. And that's a very real thing. You know, we talked about that with, with Vietnam vets. Um, and I think because of modern warfare, we don't always we don't always think about that. We don't think about the socioeconomic impacts, but for sure, that's a conversation that came up with me and my family. Boy, you and, guys had you know, you two different moms. My mom was like, can I sign this any faster and get you the <laughs> hell out of my house? Like it was just no, she could not find that. I was 17 too when I enlisted. So she, uh, she couldn't sign that paperwork fast enough. When you got there, Julie, what, what did you uh, end up doing? What, what was your job? Um, I was 11 Bravo. I was in the infantry. Oh, wow. And what, what, uh, when you got to boot camp, when you got out to the field, what, if anything, surprised you about your experience? Um, well, I think the, the first one was sort of a, a better understanding as to like sort of the distance between how much your body can take and how much your mind can take. Mm. There's a pretty significant delta there. And it's certainly not to the level of like a tier one operator or anything like that by any means. But um, for someone who's only ever been a civilian, even just going through something like um, OSA at Fort Benning is like you, you get you learn very quickly that like your your body complains far sooner than when your mind is ready to like actually give up. Um, so like that that was probably the biggest thing. And, and to be honest, is it's probably like the biggest benefit post service that, that I had as well. Sort of that that stress tolerance was um, has has been paying off dividends for. For years. Yeah. What are some tips that you learned? Like even now, because I'm getting older. <laughs> so my recovery <laughs> time isn't as good. You know, my pace, my running pace is not the same as when I was in. Um, what are some tips and tricks that you tell yourself to kind of get over some hurdles? You know, when your body is saying, hey, I, I want to quit, but your mind wants to keep going. Um, I think you sort of just learn to get into a bit of a zone, right? Cause it's not like n nobody in the army, at least not when I was in was like, Hey, these are, these are the top 10 things you should do to like make it through this easier. It's sort of like, well, you got to do this thing. Otherwise the uh, worst case scenario, you're going to go to prison, best case scenario, you're going to get discharged and deal with the shame that comes from not making it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I think, you're sort of forced, right? And some people can't do it. Um, most can, but some cannot. And then um, sort of when once once you're a civilian and sort of having that in your mind, we're like, I feel awful, but me feeling awful doesn't actually mean I can't do it or shouldn't. Um, there, there's just some resistance there. And um, the odds are I can do it, right? Even if it requires a little bit of extra Red Bull or um, whatever, um, like, you can probably do the thing that you want to do. It's just a matter of actually doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, uh, where were you deployed? Were you deployed anywhere? Um, I wasn't. So I was, I was stationed with, um, the old guard, um, out of Fort Myer, Virginia. Oh, wow. um, they have deployments, but they usually do like one to like three people at a time, sort of really randomly. Um, but it's not, you, you don't deploy as part of like a brigade or like an entire battalion as you normally would with the line company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you thought about leaving the army, what was your thought process around that? Like what, what, uh, what was it where you were like, okay, I've done my time. I'm ready to go. 
Um, so that thought process was actually like, like a month into it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I'm That's just so going to like finish up and like be done with it. Yeah. Um, so then sort of getting out, um, something that in a way was, was a blessing in disguise was having been in a, in a job in an MOS where, um, you, you get no skills that are transferable right. in, a, in a literal sense. Um, it sort of became all like. I can continue, continue to do this. My body will probably break quicker rather than sooner. Um, and that, I mean, sooner rather than later. And, or I can do pretty much anything as a civilian. And in 10 years, I'll be in a better place financially than I would now. And my body would likely be healthier as well. Um, so I remember talking to, you know, they, they have you go through like counseling sessions. Yep as you're getting out to be like, are you sure you want to do this? Like stay in the army. Like there's so many great opportunities. Right. And, um, I remember in, in mine, I walked in and there was, uh, at the counselor's office, he just had McDonald's applications, like all over the wall of like fast food and stuff. And sort of like, okay, I see the I see what you're trying to sell. And, uh, even to him, I'm like, well, if I do go work at McDonald's and like, I'm not a shitty employee, I'll probably make more money than, than what you you're making Mr. E7 in, in a lot less time. So like even that wouldn't be that bad of a prospect. Um, so that's, that's sort of like, was my thinking was sort of like, yeah, like the job was fine. I made really good friends. It was really stressful, but it wasn't for me. And I knew like, I, I would probably figure something out. That was, that was literally it. Yeah. And when you transitioned out, what, um, what was your first job? Like, what did you do when you got out? Oh, so the very first thing I did is I, um, so I signed out on terminal leave December 5th, 2011. Yeah. And the next day I was on an airplane to Mexico and in Mexico, I stayed there for six months and I, I used the GI bill there and that was, that in was Mexico. a good transitionary period. Yeah. Wow. So for Oconus, there's a flat rate BAH when you're using your GI bill. And at least for Mexico at the time, it was something like 18,000 pesos was what it came out to. So then for like six months, I didn't really have to work. I could just like go to school, which was super easy relative to like doing army stuff. Um, and I could afford like a townhouse and a gay community and a car and tacos every night. Uh, so that that's the thing. That's a selling point for me. Tacos yeah. every Sign night. Sign me up. That sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> yeah. So that, so that was... That that was literally the first thing I did. I I I didn't work those first six months because the the GI Bill stipend um, was was enough. That's amazing. Um, and then after you finished your your study, you you're sort of an engineer by trade. Like you know how to code and develop. And I saw on your LinkedIn, you pretty much just got right into web development. Um, so there there's a little bit of a of a transitionary period between when I first started doing anything technical and. Um, and sort of returning from Mexico. And that was padded with about two years of bartending. Like that's, that's what I did. Nice. Um, and then those two years, that was sort of the, the figure it out phase of like, okay, like I need to figure out what I'm going to do for like my adult job. Yeah. Uh, and um, one of the things I would do to supplant my income um, because bartending money wasn't always great. It ebbs and flows. So like typically people bartend supplement it with other forms of income. Sure. For me, I was just doing like odd jobs on like Craigslist, right? Like people who needed um, sort of real menial, like secretarial work, like basic bookkeeping, that sort of thing. And then uh, one of the people I work with, he's a small business owner who I'm still good friends with today. Um, he's like, Hey, if you 
are interested in getting into tech, you can learn this thing where this thing was AWS back when it was um, like really, really new. He's like, learn this stuff. And he's like, I can probably get you a job. Um, so, so that's, that, that was sort of the segue. I'm like, okay, I'll learn it. And then so I would bartend evenings and nights, weekends, and then during the day, uh, learn AWS, <laughs> like not knowing anything technical. And then, um, and then it sort of just snowballed from there. Yeah. What did you learn about that process early on that you took away from say the military that helped you become a better founder in those early days? Um, I, so I think from the, the military aspect was really sort of the, the mental resilience, right? Cause there's, there's a lot of that, right? When you're, at least for me, you're making like $2 an hour plus tips. Um, if, if you got a day shift and it's low, it might just be a minimum hour day or, or minimum wage day. Um, so doing that and then sort of trying to learn something based off of the, the verbal promise of one person that you hardly know, um, was, um, was like risky, but then I was like, well, like I, I don't, I don't have any other better ideas. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in, at least in my experience in, in the military where you have to do things that aren't, um, that don't necessarily make sense. You just think like there's a chance that there's a good outcome, but there's, I don't have any, any other ideas. So like, I'm just going to going to do what I'm supposed to do and, and hopefully it works out. And if it doesn't, then um, I'll figure it out at that point versus worrying about the future now. And I think that's, that's really the, the big piece. And, and it translates to being a founder, right? Where there's so much of that where it's like, I got to make a decision. I, I have all the information I'm possibly going to get at this, at this time and worrying about it isn't going to do anything. I just got to decide if I'm going to do it or not. And if I'm not like, what am I going to do instead? Right. And I think that's, that's really how the three overlap in my mind. I really think that that, that person, that small business owner was transformative in your career, really, because, and I see this uh, in my own life and in other people's lives where, you know, when you're transitioning from a career to a secondary career or another uh, decision, or even if you have major life transitions, major life choices, there's certain people that just intersect your life and they are absolutely crucial to the next step that you're going to get. And you don't know it yet. But, um, you know, looking back, though, you mentioned this other, this other person, but what are some, what are the people that really kind of turned you from, hey, this is just a thing I'm doing to, oh my gosh, I'm actually good at this. And I could actually have a career in this. Um, so there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of external people for that. So, um, with, with this person, Yusuf, who, who is a person that sort of got me into tech, um, the big, um, piece was just him following through with what he said. Um, you know, he, he got me the interview. Um, I think he really hyped me up to the inter to the interviewing managers because the questions were not we're not very good. Like we talked about like my favorite craft beers from Oregon, like <laughs> if we could fit all of the people in the U S within the state boundary of Rhode Island, like really just random stuff that, I mean, to be frank, had very, very little to do with technology. So, um, that helped me get in. And then sort of at that point, I, I didn't feel like I was necessarily qualified. And then the, the work became sort of learning on the job and figuring out like, Hey, like, where can I fit in? Where can I like contribute value? And then sort of iterating from there and, and fairly quickly, um, I was able to, to pick up on stuff and, and I, 
it's been sort of a, a rocket ship journey since since really that point. Mm-hmm. When when did you decide that you were going to do a business on your own? Like, what was the first thing that you started that was just the Julia show? Yeah, so that's the story. There is probably going to be less romantic than what other people <laughs> share. Um, so before before Zebasec, my co-founder and I, we worked at the same cybersecurity consultancy company. Um, they're a small government contractor. Um, while we were working there, we we learned through the owners of that company that um, the Department of Justice was getting rid of their email phishing simulation platform due to some financial conflicts of interest that the incumbent platform suffered through a private equity acquisition. So um, because of that, and because there was sort of a a relationship with um, cybersecurity executives within the DOJ, we sort of, we knew that there was a gap. Um, We we had the early early conversations. We're like, well, if we build something, would you guys buy it? they, they basically said yes. The owners of the company then sort of they're like, hey, if you guys want to build this, we'll we'll give you the the seed capital and let you get started. So um, for me, it was it was like it wasn't really my idea. It was sort of like an an opportunity that presented itself. And for me, I was like, sure, like why not? Let's let let's see what happens. And um, and that that's how it started. But it, it it wasn't sort of like I really want to be a founder. Like let's draft up some ideas. Like what can I do? I was just sort of like. Here's here's some money. Here's a, a product that needs to be built. Like go go do the thing, and um, and that's what we did. That's a dream, though. I mean, there's so many of us that are waiting for that opportunity. You know, there's so many entrepreneurs that are waiting for their first seed round, and this almost seems like like the dream literally fell in your lap, and the opportunity too. So, um, you know, it, whether whether you started it, dreamed of it, or it came in by conception through another person or opportunity. Um, the fact remains you're a founder now because of that. And I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, I think with like a lot of this stuff, it's, it's almost always a function of, of luck and whatever preparation you've had before then. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what it was here. There was probably a little bit more luck than preparation in my case, because it's not something I anticipated at all. Um, even just two years ago. Um, but I, I, I had sort of been around in tech at that point long enough and been working with startups enough that I'm like, yeah, I can, I can probably wing it and, and do an okay job. And what did you learn from that, that experience? Um, what part? Just the growing of a, a, you know, you had the, basically you knew what you were going to build, which is like Cynthia said, far and away more than what most founders do when they're starting a company. You had the, the capital to get it to its first iteration during that process, what what do you think you learned from that that you took in your in your next um, endeavor? Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm still not on my next endeavor, so I don't know exactly what I want to take away. So this um, is still Z- this became Zibasek. Yeah. yeah, it's still Zibasek. Oh wow, product. that's crazy. Yeah, I'm like that. I'm still I'm still CEO and co-founder of Zibasek. That's awesome. Um, so the but there there have been a lot of learnings, regardless. So. Yeah. A lot of it is to do with like team building. A lot of it has to do with um, sort of like operator type of work, um, right? So there's 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 been sort of a, a mixture, right? So on the one hand, it's like, oh, we should have started fundraising for our next round, um, not this year, but last year. That's something I didn't do, right? Um, same with hiring. Like there, 
um, we probably hired a little bit quicker than we should have. Um, equally, like I've learned a lot of the ins and outs of corporate activity and the need for things like board consents and needing like legal to review stuff. So like a lot of more like executive level tasks that like I had no reason to ever know before. Um, so it's, it's been, there, there's been quite, quite a bit of learning that has happened in the process. Yeah. No, it, when you are, th- first of all, let's back up for a second. I, I asked earlier, or I mentioned earlier that I was going to ask about the name. Where did that name come from? Zebasek. Oh, yeah. So Zeba means beautiful in Persian. Um, I re- I first heard it growing up in Portland. One of my early interests was in industrial design. And one of the local industrial design companies in Portland was called Zeba something. Um, so then when we were thinking about like ideas, I was like, oh, like I really like that name because it's not beautiful. Um, so then we picked it and then SAC, you know, security. So then beautiful security would be like the, the expanded translated version of the name. That's funny. I'm in Portland and I think I know what you're talking about. There's a, a group called Zeba Hub. And I think that's where, I think that's what you're talking about. There's a couple of them. Uh, there's a couple of Zeba things that are here. So, yeah. but they could have come out of that, that group. That's so funny. What is your favorite Oregon IPA, by the way? Oh, that's <laughs> hard. Um, I, I am particular to Rogue's um, IPAs. Yeah. Uh, though from Rogue, I do prefer Dead Guy, which I don't think is an, an IPA. Yeah. Oh my God. We could talk about Oregon beer all day long. So <laughs> it's just so good. You don't understand, Cynthia. Oregon beer is amazing. Hey, there's a place that I've hit on. There's a little gluten-free um, bakery that I found that has uh, international and national craft ciders. And one of my favorite ones, it's like an Oregon raspberry uh, craft cider that I get from there. I can't remember the name of it now, but they sell out very quickly. So I've been getting into like the whole craft scene, not just beers, but ciders and yep. just being able to find stuff that you can't get, you know, in regular places. We could do a whole show on Oregon stuff. It's yeah. amazing here. Yeah. It's yeah, crazy. I, agree. Uh, I, I do have a question, yeah. um, Julie, about, you know, moving from being an individual contributor to being a founder. You know, there's a lot of difference between, you know, your engineer work and then being a CEO and co-founder. You touched upon a little bit of that, like operations, you know, your, your the hiring processes. What are some big things that you didn't expect when you became a founder to suddenly shift from being that individual contributor to like overseeing things that, you know, like HR stuff for benefits or, you know, what, what are some major things that you realized? Yeah. So, so to be honest, that wasn't, um, too difficult for me. So a couple, so this last, the job before, right. When I worked for the cybersecurity company, I was an engineering manager. Um, so I, it, it was partly IC, but it was also people management. And then, um, prior to that role, um, I built Red Hat, um, the, the automation practice within Red Hat consulting, um, when we started, it was, it was two of us. And then by the time I left, it was, it was a, tw- a, a 12 people reporting to me. Um, and there's a lot of the same, um, uh, management overhead that comes with the startup as when you're developing like a, a business unit within a corporation in terms of like, this is how much money I have. This is who I can hire. This is kind of how we're going to do like go to market stuff. So there's, there's some overlap. Um, I think the, the, 
the big unexpected stuff was mainly around negotiations um, with like stock price, like what's your pre-money valuation going to be? And like me Googling, what is pre-money valuation? <laughs> um, you know, figuring out like, how do I like, what is there a template for like meeting minutes for a board? Like all this kind of stuff that like, it seems, it, well, it, it is very opaque. And um, so there is more on like the corporate management specific stuff is where uh, I was sort of um, in uncharted waters. Um, but uh, fortunately, because we were properly funded, we were able to like work with a lawyer who helped with a lot of that stuff. But um, even to this day, there's like, there's still times where I'm like, I don't know if I need to take this to the board or not. So then I'll just email them like, is this a board thing or is it not? Cause I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where the, 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 the unexpected stuff happened. Yeah. Explain what Zebasec does. I mean, I think we we were talking about your journey getting into it, but what at the at its core, what what do you, what does Zebasec do? Yeah, so so Zebasec is the company name with the intention of being able to have like multiple um, products under it. Um, the flagship product is a product called Fish Taco, and it is a email phishing simulation platform um, that is used for organizations that want to see how vulnerable they are to um, social engineering attacks on the email attack vector. Um, we have plans to like do other ones, but for now it's email phishing simulation. Um, and then um, IT managers, CISOs, whatever, they get a report that then says like, Hey, like this is this is what happened with your organization. This is kind of how you're doing over time, um, that kind of stuff. And um, people, when they click on an email they shouldn't, that's a simulation one. You know, they can they can be directed to training. They could they could not if depending on how it's configured by the by the end user. Um, and and that's something that we're currently doing for the entire Department of Justice. So that includes like the DEA, FBI, ATF, um, all of them. It's it's about 180,000 people that get fished by our platform every single month fish taco that's the most amazing name ever for a fishing platform by the way p-h-i-s-h i assume that's yeah, amazing exactly. good grief um, it was intended to be a joke when we yeah. were first starting on the company name uh we had, we had we came up with a bunch of different ideas and then um in jest i'm like what about fish taco and then everybody <laughs> laughed and then and then sort of the, the sort of the pause where everybody's like looking at each other like is this it is it? and then and then it became it that's amazing yeah. uh you know you've grown the you've grown the team over the time and i i see you guys have quite a few employees how important is it for you cuz you you know you touched on it a little bit when you were getting an interviewed where they were asking you about organ beers and how many like in Rhode Island like <laughs> on the other side of the table now how do you think about when you're bringing in people and the culture fit and all of that stuff like how do you think about that as you're growing your team yeah so i i think that a startup that is as early as we are um certainly when you're in the single digits number of people i think we're at 10 people now which is crazy to me um but when when you're at that level as a the founding team needs to be involved in every single hire very intimately so. Um, so for me, there is there is a one of the big things is to be able to get um, diverse representation and laying down the framework to facilitate that. Right. So even when we started, 
week one, I created the first iteration of our employee handbook that contained um, a code of conduct, for example. Um, and then from the, the interview process, that is something where when we reached out to people, we're like, hey, by the way, our employee handbook is public. You can just go look at it. Tell us what you think. And that served as a really valuable recruiting tool. Um, so now like how did like exactly half of our team is is women. Um, all the women on our on our team are engineers. Um, and we have good minority representation. We have LGBT representation. And that's just like a 10-person company. And that's not something where we had to like go out and search for people that match a certain background. We just sort of created the one, the email copy from the job ad perspective, and then a process that would facilitate. Um, something that would mitigate any implicit biases. We had the employee handbook as a way to say, like, this is how we think about um, our people and the interactions and sort of the, our guiding principles for all that stuff. And that that really, all that really helped to to have the team that we have today, which is is really, really cool. That's amazing. I think there's a lot of early stage companies that don't get that right. I mean, from the onset, they're not thinking about diversity. They're not thinking about representation across the board. So kudos to you for doing that. Like that's, that's huge. And I, that's amazing. Um, as you're growing the company and you're thinking about the things that you've done, the missteps that you've made, what do you think you've learned over the time uh, that you, you're, you've grown this company? What, what do you think the lessons you're taking away so far? Yeah. So um, I've made a lot of missteps, right? And I think a lot of that is, is a function of hindsight, where at the moment, you don't necessarily know until later. And then you're like, oh, that was that actually was a bad decision. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't have that awareness. Um, so I think that's, um, that's really like the big one in terms of just the mental model for like life is sort of, um, you're going, you're, you're going to make mistakes, probably more than, than what you think. Um, but really all you can do is sort of like w w once the outcome is known, figure out what you're going to do about it. And then sort of iterate that way, knowing that even if you make the best possible decision, the outcome could still be a net negative, right? Like good decisions don't necessarily result in good outcomes. And that's, um, that's sort of something that, that you face as a founder and realize time and time again, where it's like, I made a good decision, but the outcome was not good. Um, even, you know, as we're, as we're growing, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty as well and sort of being like, okay, like this is, this is our runway. Like, I don't know if we're still going to exist next year, right? Like that's life as a founder, but, um, I know what I can do now to reduce the odds of failing. Right. And I think that's, um, there's a lot of, a, a lot of applicability there, not just for like future career stuff, but just like personal life stuff. Right. Where it's like, well, we'll, we'll see what happens, but we'll do the best we can now. Yeah. Um, if you could go back as you're getting out of the military and you're thinking about becoming a founder or getting thrust into this world, what would you, what one piece of advice would you have given yourself? Um, I, I probably would have taken more time to realize the work that goes into being a founder. Um, I think that I just didn't know any better. I'd worked for startups before, um, in the past, I worked for um, a tech company called Ansible. I was a relatively early employee, so I got to see how um, the founding team operated and sort of looked at it from the outside, but never from an actual founder. Yeah. And it's 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 a whole another story when you're on the driver's seat, um, even when you're sharing that driver's seat with a co-founder. Um, and I think if I think I would have taken a pause when people are like, "Hey, like." 
you should make like here's some money, create a startup, and be like, okay, like let me look into like what typically goes into building a startup first, so I can sort of take my time and plan a little bit better, even like a week, right? Uh, which at the time I was like, yeah, like I'll just figure it out as I go, which um, worked out okay, but it would have been a lot better if I would have like at least charted some semblance of a roadmap for like key things I needed to do with things like hiring, you know, thinking about how like engineering works when you're when you don't have an unlimited budget, you know, like that, that kind of stuff, um, which I sort of took for granted, not, not knowing any, any better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where do you, where do you want ZBSEC to go in the next five to 10 years? Where do you think that your company is headed? Um, I, I think for us long-term, the, the, what is likely to be the strategic play is one where um, we, get acquired by a company that has this sort of thing as a gap in their feature set, right? And that's sort of just more tactical, like this is likely where it makes the most sense. However, as we're growing, we have a couple of ideas where we could sort of um, do tangential stuff, certainly with like email defense. Um, however, there's a lot of hesitation there because the email defense space is super crowded, right? You have, there, there's a ton of competition. There's publicly traded billion dollar companies that are already in the space. Um, so then sort of thinking like, well, if if we're focusing on sort of um, simulation sophistication, which is really kind of our key differentiator, like how do we make that into a billion dollar business? And for me, it's that value prop alone isn't likely to get us there. So we would have to start thinking like, okay, like what else can we do that's related to social engineering, human vulnerabilities, um, that that weak, that forever weak point of any given organization, whether you're the CIA or a one person sole proprietorship, your weak point is a person. And um, so you're thinking like, what what else can we do there, right? Um, so we have a lot of really interesting ideas, everything from uh, creating <laughs> creating a warehouse of people that are just sort of uh, sending. Um, unsolicited messages over social media to sort of replicate what Russia is doing with how they do social media mm. and um, using that to like bring jobs to the Midwest and then using the like, Hey, we can do some serious like red team social engineering stuff at a price point that's like super low um, while then also having like more sophisticated attack type simulations where like, Hey, maybe, maybe Josh, he, he clicked on an email. So now we're going to send him a physical letter and tell, tell him to call this number. And if he calls his number, then we'll do this other thing. And then sort of be able to provide like a holistic picture as to all the ways in which you're vulnerable and how you're susceptible um, to then inform security people, not as a gotcha to be like, Hey, you're fired because you're human, but more of like, this is, this is where we need to train our people to be a little bit more, more skeptical, um, to, to double check the information they received with like, right. um, sources of information that, um, they can get internally, that sort of thing. I definitely think that education and training piece is a, is a huge part of it. It's so, you know, I think, you know, as technology is changing and evolving and as, um, threats change and evolve we sometimes you just don't realize you know people are haven't been educated on it we're so busy living our everyday lives and focusing on our details in front of us um so i, I really like the fact that you've been able to like shift and look into what is needed what are other spaces that you can um that hasn't been touched right so you're not competing with you know all of this other competition within the defense space but what are other areas that you can go into which i think is really key for growth yeah yeah no you touched on it right there uh julie where can people find you online 
Um, so I am on Twitter at Julie Davila 89. And then, um, uh, from there, I, I'm pretty active on there. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, those are my only two social medias actually. Yeah. Um, but either one will do have, have links and threads and stuff. <laughs> so that's, that's probably the, the best way to interact with me. And the, the company website is zebasec.com. Yeah, you can do .io too, but nice. we have .com. I, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you, Julie. Thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck uh, on everything you're doing. I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story. Thank you, Josh, Thanks. Cynthia. It's been it's great to have you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, by the way, Cynthia, we we messed up last week and we forgot to call out that that was our hundredth episode. So we are at hundred and one. That's awesome. It's crazy. It's been two years we've been doing this, and we've had some amazing founders like Julie, and uh, we're so thrilled that people. Um, I I get emails all the time from people that that know the show, that listen to the show, and are hu- huge fans. So thank you for everyone for listening over the last two years, and here's to hundred and one more. That's amazing. I can't even believe really we made cool. it this far. It's crazy. It's crazy. We've had so many cool guests and I'm so excited. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Listen, learn, get shit done. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.